Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. for a Tuesday edition of All Marine Radio, right here on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Hope you're, <clears throat> excuse me, hope you're having a good day wherever you are. Yep. And welcome to my house. Yep, the house of uh, All Marine Radio. So, uh, The 26th day of October, in case you're not paying attention. Yeah, so you got that going for you. All day. Uh, it's gotten cold here on the West Coast. I think I should report that to you. Yep. And, uh, yeah, not as bad here in Southern California as it was <clears throat> in Northern California. But, uh, yeah, cold weather, rain most of the day yesterday, and uh, yeah, so hopefully it warms up today. It's supposed to warm up today, I know that, so uh, yeah, we'll look forward to that. The, um, going to do the news hour today, Chris Woodbridge will join me tomorrow. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about something that's going on, um, kind of an interesting little uh, kerfuffle uh, in uh, the Marine Corps Gazette. 
um, between two guys that are no strangers to each other. Uh, General Paul K. Van Riper, who's one of the intellectuals of the Marine Corps and uh, has a reputation, had a reputation of being um, an absolute hard ass relative to discipline. And he was. And then, but he also had a reputation as just, just um, this incredible intellect. And so, I, in my opinion, um, he embodied what you ought to be. He was a thinker. And, uh, but when we got to the execution piece of all of this, <clears throat> he was no, uh, he was no bullshit. He was no, he was not screwing around one bit. And so, um, yeah, General Paul K. Van Riper and his son write an article in the October Gazette, a letter to the editor, talking about fourth generation war, which is a guy, which was, uh, um, let's see, championed um, by a guy named Bill Lind. Bill Lind was around when uh, Will, Jeff, Tim, and I and our cohorts were um, were cutting our teeth on this concept of maneuver warfare in the Marine Corps that we would debate, we would fight about, and whatnot. And so, um, so, so we're obviously no stranger to that guy. And um, it, it's interesting. Uh, low these years later. Uh, he's still in the discussion relative to the Marine Corps. And he's still, um, he's, he's still, and he's always been a provocative guy because he has this snarky manner about him. And so when, uh, when he is critical, right, he'll throw these, should I say pithy asides, but they're aimed at somebody. Yeah, which, which gets everybody's <clears throat> hair up in the room. So anyway, They've had their own, they've had a little dust up here. I want to talk about that. Maybe I'll read a little bit of, of what they wrote. And uh, Chris Woodbridge is coming on tomorrow. So we'll ask Woody about that. And then we'll ask the Mensa brothers what they think. So I'll make sure I send this stuff to them and then they can check it out. Um, but I, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, interesting interesting little stuff in, in the professional journal of Marines, which is the Marine Corps Gazette. Everybody knows Chris Woodbridge. And uh, so I want to get into that a little bit today. So we'll, uh, we'll check news headlines as we do. And then, uh, and then I'll read you some little snippets of, uh, of what the Van Ripers write and uh, what they wrote written by uh, the general himself. And along with uh, with his son, Colonel James K. Van Riper. I'm pretty sure that's his son. He has a brother, but that's his son, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so anyway, um, I think, right, I think... Um, Anyway, I'm not sure on the relationship of the two. Maybe somebody could help me out. Um, so anyway, we'll do that today. And uh, so welcome to a, what is today? A Tuesday edition of All Marine Radio. I'm still kind of basking in the afterglow of, uh, of a seminar I did last night with people that have graduated from post-traumatic winning. Wow. 
Yeah, crazy good. Um, it was one. Of, it was one of those things. Like on occasion, I do in the graduate seminar. Everybody's gone through the program already, so I I'll pick a subject and we'll talk about it. And um, last night, um, there was the fourth seminar group. People were showing up to that, or those that chose to do so. And then whoever else has graduated comes back on Monday night. And, you know, if they feel the if they feel the movement, they show up. But anyway, um, so yeah, so that, that's what was going on. And then, um, so I thought, well, you know what? I'd be curious. What have people found most um, most useful in all of this? Right. So, what would they say? So I thought, well, you know, that's you know, you, whether you've done the program for eight weeks or you've done it for longer, um, you'll have an opinion on that. I know that, and so that's what we did. And it was, uh, a, it was awesome, <laughs> and uh, b, um, it generated more conversation. And there's just some incredible stuff that goes on in that group. And I just, uh, and you sit there and listen to it. And because I moderate the whole thing, right, I know, um, I know the story of a lot of these people. And so it's just, uh, I can't tell you how cool it is to um, see the growth that they've experienced as they've I missed with the height of my microphone. As they've as they've taken on this this study of the traumatic experiences in their life and the way they've um, the way those traumatic experiences have um, have impacted their lives, and then to see the change on the backside, to see the way they help other people now, um, crazy. And so uh, I'll just give you one example, and I won't name names, but um, there was a guy, a, a man and a woman, who uh, were in the fourth group, so that it was their first night in this graduate group, right? Well, they're in Arizona, and they're in Arizona because they start this little thing that begins when the wife begins to write down her traumatic events in her life. Now, that idea comes from a woman in the graduate group who was there last night. And so she's there, and she said, well, we're in Arizona right now. And, you know, this all started when, you know, we, you know, one of the components of post-traumatic winning is you've got to take care of yourself financially, and you've got to take that pressure out of your life. And so she said, so we started doing that. And what happened because of that is, you know, we set some goals. And then this opportunity because of that came up. And we're here in Arizona, and we might move to Arizona. And you could see how excited they both were. And the coolest thing, though, was that the woman whose idea came out of a conversation like this. Well, I didn't think I had that much trauma in my life. And then, so I thought I'd sit down and make a list of them. And so I did. And now I tell people, when you begin to journal, 
That's journal entry number one. Sit down and write, and again, your own definition, what has been traumatic in your life. If you think it's traumatic, then put it down there. And the list is going to surprise you. How long the list is going, is, is going to surprise you. And so you had this, this couple who was so excited in Arizona talking about you know, how, they, how they got to this point in their life how much their life has changed in eight weeks since they first started the course. They actually saw me. The story gets even better. They saw me speak in Springfield, Illinois, at the Marine Corps League event there that I went that I spoke at. Yeah. So that's how I get on their radar. And um, so, yeah, it's just I have this thing, good on top of good on top of good on top of good on top of good. That's that's what last night was. And you hear people begin. There's another story that, that I won't talk too much about. Um, a woman told, you know, a woman told a story about uh, going to a home for unwed mothers when she was a young girl, when she was a teenager. And the story is a brutal story, right? So her parents, uh, her mom specifically, embarrassed that her daughter's pregnant, so she gets sent away, so not to embarrass the family, to have the baby. So it's essentially an unwed mother's home. It's, it's kind of an orphanage attached to a hospital. And so the day comes for her to have her baby, and she has her baby. And I asked her a week ago, I said, did you get to hold the baby? And she said, for an hour. A day after I had my daughter, uh, they came to me and they said, uh, would you like to hold a baby? And she said, yes. So I, she said, and it's very emotional. She said, I got to spend an hour with my daughter, and I won't see her again for 39 years. Well, there's another guy in the, in, in the seminar, and he fathered a, a child when he was a teenager. And the closest he ever got was a block away when he saw the mother of the baby uh, with a stroller, and he crossed the street to avoid her, Right? Like a nightmare for him now, and so, so he's been going through this, and because of these discussions, he reached out to the mother of of the child and wrote her a letter, and uh, she said, um, "Yes, I would like to talk to you about it." And so you could see the joy in his face as well. So um, yeah, last night was like cooler than shit for me. Uh, in spite of the cold weather here. And so, uh, yeah, anyway, uh, I thought I'd share that with you. So, again, if you have any, I'm starting another seminar tonight. Uh, if you know somebody that might uh, benefit from it, do not be afraid to uh, let them know. And uh, on that note, the United States Marine Corps Band makes this morning official. Good morning to you. <laughs>
And this is dedicated to um, the intellectual life of the Marine Corps, which um, I think has waned since I was on active duty. And I don't say that. I I don't think, anyway, because I'm uh, some old dude who says. But, I I mean, I got to serve in a, I think, in— for part of my career in, in a great period in the history of the Marine Corps. And that was uh, the Marine Corps was led by a commandant who was all about that, and his name was Al Gray. And uh, Al Gray is an anomaly among commandants of the Marine Corps in, in that the um, he should have never been the commandant of the Marine Corps, right? He uh, He's only the commandant of the Marine Corps because— um, James Webb becomes the Secretary of the Navy, right, Marine, and he names Al Gray as Commandant of the Marine Corps. And so, I mean, Webb, I mean, was an anomaly to begin with himself, as was uh, General Gray. And so, but um, what happened was, I mean, we would we would have these fights about it, and those fights were encouraged. And um, guys wrote articles, and it was a fight over, you know, and it was, I don't know. And I don't know that that same spirit exists. I, I don't know that that, um, that, yeah, I expect you to fight intellectually over it. It still exists. And, and this is a good example of it, right? Um, this is a good example of it in terms of uh, General Van Riper and and Bill Lind are you know are are friends. I mean they're collegial. Um, at at the greatest PME that I've ever attended in my life, um, which is General Zinni's PME, Brigadier General Van Riper is sitting off to the side, and sitting right next to him is is Bill Lind. And so they are no strangers. They're no strangers to this exercise certainly. So this is dedicated to the intellectual life of the Marine Corps, which is really, really important because it is that intellectual life that will tackle issues like, should we bring cell phones to work anymore? Yeah. This whole idea of diversity and equity, right? Equity. Equity is is equality in outcome. Right? That's how I read it. It's equality and outcome. America's promise is equality of opportunity. So, um, so these issues that we tackle, right, have to be tackled in this vibrant intellectual atmosphere as opposed to, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, because once you go down that road, and you stifle the intellectual development of the organization, yeah, you're not a, you're not in a good place. So this is dedicated to Chris Woodbridge, the people at the Gazette, and the people that are stewards of of intellectual discourse in the Marine Corps. All right, um, I applaud them for for encouraging this and promoting this exchange. And uh, nice going, keep it up. <laughs>
You're betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think. And you don't say it honestly and bluntly. What keeps you awake at night? Nothing. I keep other people awake at night. For this campus had prepared him well. <clears throat> I'm very confident that, thank you very much. <clears throat> if this was vodka, it'd be a lot better speech. <clears throat> Every time it makes me laugh. I kid you not. <clears throat> but I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult, challenging conditions and odds and win. You got to win. Time for us to check the weather right now. Off to the east coast when we go, when we do that. Oh, man. Yeah. Quantico had five weather alerts. I updated it. They're down to three now. Currently sunny and 66 in Quantico. The weather warnings in the Quantico area are as follows. Gale warning in effect until Wednesday at 6 a.m. Eastern time. A wind advisory Tuesday from noon till Wednesday at noon and a small craft advisory. So high winds in the Quantico area. down the coast at Marine Corps Base, Marine Corps Air Station, Cherry Point, it is sunny and 66. 29 Palms is sunny and 53, so they've cooled off. Camp Pendleton, fog and 56. Camp Smith in Hawaii is dark cloudy and 70. Okinawa, dark clear, odd for Okinawa, and 67 degrees, cooler than most. Down in Manila to the south. Dark cloudy in 80. And in Darwin, further south yet, it is dark, cloudy, and 84 degrees. Currently at the home of Almarine Radio, it is sunny and 55 degrees. Looking for a high of 70 degrees today, 79 tomorrow, 85 on Thursday, 76 on Friday, 70 on Saturday. So that is a uh, that is a look at your weather here. So so you got that going for you. The um, we'll check some news headlines right now, and uh, and then as we uh, as I promised, we'll uh, I'll get through this. In relatively short order, and I, I just want to read a little bit from uh, Brigadier General, or I'm sorry, Lieutenant General Van Rypers. Uh, I, I, I'm, I had a conversation with him about a month ago, 
And uh, he told me, uh, he sent me a copy of it, uh, told me it was coming out. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if he wants to come on and talk about it. And then we'll see if Mr. Lynn wants to come on and talk about his re- rebuttal um, or his response. I don't know if it's a rebuttal. Uh, the uh, top stories today in, uh, in Stars and Stripes. Army Secretary reassures Germans that the U.S. forces will be in the country for the long term. Again, I'm, I'm mystified. What do we owe the Germans? Supposedly, um, you know, Ms. Merkel is, you know, resigning. That's, that's not supposedly, that's a fact. But, you know, there's, a, I saw a story last week that said the Germans said that they were not committed to the goal of 2% um, defense spending uh, on NATO. So, um, again, what do we owe the Germans? I mean, if you look at the map and you look at Germany's position and you look at um, and you look at the, the conflict, any conflict with Russia, where ought we to be? You know, somehow or other welded, right, to the uh, aftermath of World War II? No, I don't think so. Right? Poland further east? Certainly. The Ukraine further east yet? Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia? You know, why Germany? Right? Why Germany? So I, you know, again, I don't... Germany is not concerned with their own defense, but when when former President Trump said... um, yeah, we're out of here. Um, then it became a big deal. So wait a minute. You expect the United States to be more concerned about your defense than you are. Germany, the facilitators of the Russian gas pipeline, right? That is so much in the news. So again... Um, I don't. I, it, it's it's curious to me how how all of this comes together, and it makes sense to who, right? It makes sense to who, you know. American presence, if it's a confrontation with Russia that we're worried about, right, ought to be forward towards Poland, the Ukraine, right, and the Baltics, up in Norway, where we're already at, right. And so, anyway, interesting article. Another article, uh, Stars and Stripes. Uh, headline, Navy Secretary expresses concern over Chinese and Russian ships during a visit to Japan. This is at Yokosuka Naval Air Base, or Kuska Naval Base in Japan. The U.S. Navy is reevaluating its presence in the Indo-Pacific region to protect national interests as China and Russia grow more assertive, according to the service's top civilian leader, Carlos del Toro, who was on his first visit to Japan as Secretary of the Navy, spoke with reporters via teleconference from the home of Naval Forces Japan on Monday, not long after 10 Russian and Chinese naval vessels circled Japan by passing through narrow Japanese straits. Now, um, Grant Newsham and I <laughs> talked about this yesterday. 
And, you know, it is simply uh, sticking, sticking the eye in the thumb of Japan. So if you look at Japan, right, you have the main island. I don't know what they call the main island. But the northern island's called Hokkaido, right? And then um, then you have this strait, and I can't recall uh, the name of the strait, but there's a strait, and it's a fairly narrow body of water that runs between Hokkaido and the main island of Japan. And they, all 10 ships, Chinese and Russian, drove right, drove, drove right through the strait. Had never had, the most important thing is, had never happened before, right? Yeah, unprecedented. And then what they did was they hung a right and they stayed just outside of Japanese territorial water, right? And they drove down the coast. Yeah, and they messed around. So message signaling, right? Message signaling. China, message signaling. Yeah. So anyway, you can bust your map out and look at where they drove. Um, that any nation, the article goes on, that any nation ships could pass through international waters unimpeded is truly a wonderful thing, Del Toro said. Nevertheless, he saw other intent behind the exercise. Quote, I believe that the relationship between China and Russia perhaps recently, has evolved in ways where they're trying to intimidate other nations with their actions that don't abide by a rules-based international order. I think it's necessary to thoroughly deter them from bullying other countries and being aggressors in any possible way. The outward-bound Chinese and Russian warships pass through the Sagaru Strait between Hokkaido and Honshu Island. Honshu is a big island on October 18th, and turned inbound Thursday through the Osami Strait off the, southern mist, off the southernmost tip of Kayusha Island. <laughs> so, yeah, they're just being shitheads, right? Right? Both straits are considered international waters, and ships did not intrude on Japan's territorial waters, according to the Associated Press. Now, the question is, what does the international community do to defend the rules-based order? That's the question. All right. Now, I don't know that there's a great answer for it right now. And my next, the other part of me that isn't this why the United Nations got created in the first place? Right? That nations would come to settle disputes, blah, 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 blah. Right. That's why, you know, and, and we wouldn't have to go to war as modern nations, right? We, there would be other ways to... So when, when the free nations of the world become concerned, why, where is the United Nations telling China, hey, um, I want you to know that we're very concerned with all this stuff that you're going to try to, um, in some way, shape, or form... Uh, take back, to take over, not take back, to take over Taiwan. Taiwan has 23 and a half million people. In 
And so the rest of the world is okay with that. Hmm. So again, begs a couple questions. Does the UN have any role in all this? Or do they, they just stand there with their hands in their pockets and say, hey, whatever, uh, whatever you, nothing to see here. If you've got a problem, you can always bring it to us. Yeah. Another story that's making the rounds yesterday that caught my eye was headline. This is in the Washington Post by Liz Sly. Iran's role in attack on U.S. troops in Syria signals a new escalation. Iran appears to have been responsible for a drone attack on a U.S. outpost in Syria, suggesting that a new front could be opening in a low-level conflict that has simmered since the United States pulled out of the Iran nuclear accord in 2017. No casualties were reported in the attack on the isolated U.S. outpost at Al-Tanf, T-A-N-F, near the Jordanian and Iraqi borders, according to the U.S. military. But pro-Iranian media trumpeted it as a victory, and it was the first major attack on U.S. troops in Syria by Iran. It also marked the biggest and the most sophisticated strike against a relatively small U.S. force in Syria deployed in 2015 to support Kurdish-led forces in the fight against the Islamic State. At a news briefing on Monday, Pentagon spokesman John Kirby refused to directly blame Iran for the barrage of rockets and exploding drones that caused considerable damage to the base, according to photographs circulated on social media. He described it as a complex, coordinated, and deliberate attack, noted that similar attacks have been carried out by Iran-allied Shiite militias against U.S. troops elsewhere. Now, again, if the United States doesn't hold Iran accountable for this stuff, it will continue to go on and on and on and on. And I and that is the game that Iran wants to play, right? Well, we will use our proxies to kill you. And then when we retaliate with a drone strike against a proxy, what does that hurt Iran? Answer, not one bit. Now, say what you may about the, the, the drone strike on General Soleimani. But if you want Iran in a box, you have to put them in the box. And you have to let them know, if your proxies operate against us, we will take it out on you. So, And if you don't do that, then you just put everybody at risk by playing this stupid game on their, on their rules. And I, for the life of me, I, I don't, I don't understand why we do that. Right? I think, be, I think we do it because of weak leaders. From the Wall Street Journal, top headlines this morning: FDA panel reviews Pfizer COVID shot in young children. Experts advising the Food and Drug Administration are meeting to consider endorsing the COVID nineteen vaccine vaccine from Pfizer and BioNTech for the use in young children. Um. 3D printed houses are sprouting up in Austin, Texas. How about that? 3D, right? Manufactured housing. 
coming to a theater near you. So that in the news this morning. The other, um, the other, I don't know if you're following the Theranos story, but it is one of the great cons, right? Elizabeth Holmes was the CEO. General Mattis has been a witness. He was on their board. But they completely falsified research and said that they had developed a synthetic form of blood. And if you read some of the articles that come out of the, of the trial, they're amazing about the, the money involved that was being raised and the lying that was done, right? The lying that was done. So, um, yeah, so that in the news. From the uh, New York Times that I have a digital subscription to for a while. So you'll get a headline. Um Top headline, Democrats on verge of something major, Pelosi says, as deal remains elusive. The other interesting headline is the continuing evolution of Facebook's problems. Another headline, Facebook is mired in a PR crisis. It could face a legal one as well. And uh, in the fallout of the release of the Facebook papers, one pressing question is whether the Securities and Exchange Commission will add to the company's woes. So it's very interesting. The people that have um, um, that have become whistleblowers on Facebook have used the SEC and the SEC's whistleblower um, protections, right? as their vehicle to bring this stuff to public. And what they're specifically charging is that uh, Facebook has lied to the SEC about what it does. And that's against the law. So it's very interesting. Yeah, These people are not amateurs, <laughs> to say the least. So that is in the news. In USNI news uh, today, top story, report on Navy force structure. Um. And if you go to USNI News today, it, it shows you the route. There's a map and the two lines of ships that are both are Russian and Chinese. Yeah. Headline, Russia-China wrap up drills off Japan, pledge more joint exercises. Um, and so you see the route of, of this group of ships and how close they were to the Japanese coast. And uh, amid this message sending. Now, again, it'll be curious. So what's the Japanese? Uh, what is the Japanese response to this? Is it to, you know, increase their budget to be able to, to defend themselves in a more substantial way? To rejoin after World War II, finally, the League of Nations as they defend the nation and contribute to the defense of others? Is that what's in the offing or not so much? Hmm. Um, so, um, so we will see Japan. I mean, this is like straight, like walking up and poking you like right in the chest. Poof. Right? China and Russia. Um, headline, Marines face separation if not fully vaccinated by the end of November, written by Heather Mongilio. And a picture of uh, 
Sergeant Major James Robertson, Sergeant Major of Marine Corps Air Station Cherry Point, receiving the COVID-19 vaccine at Cherry Point this past December. All active duty Marines will need to be fully vaccinated against COVID-19 by November 28th or face separation according to new guidance from the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps guidance signed Saturday and released by Lieutenant General David J. Furness, Deputy Commandant for Plans, Policies, and Operations, follows the Navy guidance from two weeks ago, which gave active duty sailors until November 28th to be fully vaccinated and reservists until December 28th. Anyone not fully vaccinated, which is defined as two weeks after receiving the second dose of a two-dose COVID-19 vaccination or the one-dose Johnson & Johnson version, who does not have an exemption or pending exemption, will be administratively separated. Those being separated for vaccine refusal will receive no lower than a general discharge under favorable conditions, according to MAR admin 612-21. Those who do not want to be vaccinated can seek an exemption for medical or religious reason. A Marine will not be considered for refusing to be vaccinated until the exemption has been denied. A Marine cannot be discharged while an appeal over an exemption is pending according to the guidance. Quote, any Marine who has not been fully vaccinated is not considered worldwide deployable and shall be assigned or reassigned locally to billets which account for health risks to the unvaccinated Marine and those working in proximity to the Marine. So, yeah, not a small deal. Not a small deal. Um, top stories in Marine Corps Times today. are the same as they were yesterday. Except for they've added the drone strike story. So not so much new there. Top five stories in early bird this morning on this Tuesday, the 26th day of October. Number one, House passes bill to posthumously award congressional gold medal to 13 U.S. service members killed in Afghanistan. After 13 U.S. troops were killed in an August bomb blast outside the Hamid Hamid Karzai International Airport in Kabul, Afghanistan, the House passed the bill Monday evening to posthumously award the Congressional Gold Medal to them. 11 Marines, one sailor, and one soldier died from the blast. The medal is Congress's highest expression of national appreciation and is the highest civilian award in the United States. The honor has been bestowed fewer than 200 times. Hmm. Odd, right? You don't see it very often. I've never seen it. I don't think I've ever seen it relative to um, active duty military people. So, uh, yeah. Interesting. Uh, Next, U.S. military was tipped off about Iran-backed attack on troops in Syria saving lives. 
So that was the next question. Given that it was a complex attack, right, and it sounds like it was, um, uh, it, it, it had multiple different, I'm having a problem with things like um, playing and playing audio of all crazy things. Uh, this story is uh, comes from Fox News, written by Lucas Tomlinson and Michael Lee, an exclusive. The U.S. military was tipped was tipped off prior to an Iran-backed drone strike on a base in Syria housing American forces. Roughly 200 U.S. troops were evacuated by C-130 transport planes prior to the attack last week, while about two dozen remained. At the small base, one military official told Fox News. While it was not clear what type of intelligence led to the tip, multiple officials say it saved lives. No American troops were injured or killed in the attack on the base located near the borders of Iraq and Jordan. I don't, you know what, I hate watching, I hate watching those press conferences and I hate watching John Kirby. And let me just tell you, watching public affairs officers do their thing, I mean, their job is to tell you nothing, right? That's their job. And I just find it maddening. You know, you watch them. And like, he doesn't know the technical details of it. He's giving you wave top stuff of a, of a statement that somebody gave to him. And so you just watch it. It's like, this is such a colossal waste of time. Maybe it's better than nothing, but it's just marginally better than nothing. At a press conference Monday, Pentagon spokesman John Kirby, former, I think, was he a one-star admiral in the Navy? Captain in the Navy, maybe? Called the attack, quote, complex, coordinated, and deliberate, noting that similar attacks have in the past originated from Shia militia groups tied to Iran. So what are we doing about it? Then he goes on, the boilerplate, right? The protection and security of our troops overseas remains a paramount concern for the secretary. Hmm. So what are we doing about it? If there is to be a response, it will be at a time and a place and a manner of our choosing, and we certainly won't get ahead of those kinds of decisions. Gotcha, John. Thanks for the thanks for the info, bro. Amazing. Um, interesting. I think the Israelis had anything to do with tipping us off? They're pretty good at that kind of shit, right? Uh, next headline: Judge to sentence neo-Nazi group members, including U.S. Army veteran, under terrorism law. There you go. There's that narrative of the veteran extremist, right? <clears throat> Interesting article. Why didn't the Navy see the USS Bonhomme Richard fire coming? Written by Jeff Zulowitz, who we like. It starts out like this. When the amphibious assault ship Bonhomme Richard caught fire last summer while undergoing maintenance and then burned for nearly a week, those inside and outside the fleet wondered how such a peacetime loss of a warship could ever happen. 
But according to a big Navy review of ship fires released last week, the threat of such a catastrophe has smoldered inside the sea services public and private shipyards for years. The so-called Major Fires Review was released in conjunction with the Navy's command investigation into the July 20, 2020 fire aboard the Bonhomme Richard, which found that the Navy failed at all levels to fight the fire after a junior sailor allegedly started it. The Fires Review looked at 15 shipboard fire-related events in the past 12 years and found a series of troubling commonalities. I don't even think I want to read it. Oh, my God. Aside from the fire that destroyed the submarine Miami and led to a service-wide, led to service-wide reforms that were never properly followed. See what I'm saying? I didn't, don't want Zuluitz, man. The review looked at fires aboard carriers, amphibs, cruisers, destroyers, mine hunters, and dock handling ships. The report does not name the ship studied. 11 of the 15 fires occurred outside the normal workday when the crew was in duty sections or reduced manning status. Reduced manning at the time of the event contributed to command and control dysfunction, delayed the detection and response, and an increase in severity of nearly all fires that occurred outside of normal working hours. The review found that four of the 15 fires were directly attributable to improper hot work conducted by public and private shipyard workers, and that six events were attributable to the Navy crews not properly maintaining or stowing hazardous or combustible material. All things that, again, all things that happen on a ship on a regular basis. Okay, so what you're talking about is discipline. The Miami's fire was found to be caused by arson, while two other events had suspicious origin and foul play was not ruled out. Two of the other fires had unknown origins. The review also found that lessons learned from ship fires are not, quote, effectively collected or disseminated so that the fleet can learn from the mistakes. The report notes a lack of respect for all fire hazards that abounds during shipyard maintenance periods, as well as a proclivity to not keep spaces clean or stow hazardous. I told you I did not want to read this. Oh, man. We'll talk about that tomorrow on Thursday. So there's another one that we'll, we'll get to. Again, you know that it's the number one threat to the ship while you're in port, go, undergoing a maintenance period. You have all these lessons learned, and you don't take your ship and turn it into the firefighting factory from hell? Like, what are you doing? Why are you there? It's just, (laughs) yeah, troubling, to say the least. Um, Overseas operational headlines, right? 30 Afghan orphans are Colorado bound after a traumatic escape. That's a story out of the Denver Gazette. 30 Afghan orphans who somehow survived the chaotic exit from Kabul airport in addition to months of uncertainty traveling alone are headed to Colorado now. So that's a good story. Hopefully they'll they'll uh, pick up their lives in Colorado. Yeah. Good for them. Officials, Iran behind the drone strike on U.S. base in Syria. Nice. 
Nearly, next headline, nearly 6,700 Afghan have resettled in the United States. More than 53,000 remain on stateside military bases, according to the Pentagon. And one more operational headline, and that is this. Uh, the U.S. cuts off $700 million in aid to the Sudan after their military coup. So that is look at the headlines. Now, I wanted to go over, um, and let me see, how do I do this? That's not what I want. I want the PDF. Give me a second here. Adobe Acrobat. File, open, downloads, Gazette, October, kaboom. Now let me get to page four because that's where the letters to the editor start. And I'll just, I'll, I'll just read you some snippets, so I'll tease this a little bit. Um, let's see. Um, response to Olympus. Okay, so um, here's another... So, um, Bill Lind, Enough is Enough. That's the one the Van Rypers wrote, right? And then uh, Gazette writes, under the name of Marinas, um, writes a response to Olympus. And then what Lind writes is entitled, The View from Olympus, the Marine Corps again, Fire, Counterfire. So let me, let me I'll write you what Bill Lind wrote. And then... Um, and then I'll kind of double back to what spawned this, all right? The October 2021 Marine Corps Gazette contains a long letter from Lieutenant General Paul K. Van Riper and Colonel James K. Van Riper, both United States Marine Corps retired, denying the value of the concept of fourth generation war and of the broader intellectual framework of the fourth generations of modern war, of the four generations of modern war. Their timing is perhaps a bit off since we just saw the Marine Corps, along with other American armed services and some NATO allies, defeated in a fourth generation war in Afghanistan. But I've known General Van Riper for decades and respect him highly, so a reply is in order. As the Van Rypers note, war was not an immutable nature. War has an, immut an immutable nature. I'm struggling here. Though the conduct of war, they say character, changes over time, change itself is thus part of war's nature, and it makes war's nature dialect, dialectical, whatever the hell that means. One way war establishes itself for a shorter or longer time as dominant, it challenges, it is challenged by a new way of war, usually mixed with elements of the old becomes dominant, and the cycle begins anew. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis, we see over and over throughout history. I call the new syntheses, quote, generations, close quote. Then the Van Rypers call them bananas if they want to. 
But to deny war is dialectical, is to deny its nature. As the fourth generation war, the Ben Ripers miss its essence. It is not, as they state, insurgency, nor do four generation warfare entities win by having superior will. It is a contest for legitimacy, which makes John Boy's moral level of war decisive. People regard as legitimate whatever entity seems most moral to them. Their standards of morality may be very different from ours. The entity that has legitimacy in their eyes is one they will be willing to fight for to the point of becoming suicide bombers, It is the power of fourth-generation warfare at the moral level that enables physically weak entities like ISIS and the Taliban, who have no tanks, fighters, bombers, artillery, or the other usual measures of combat power to defeat the U.S. Marine Corps and other state-armed forces. Notice he doesn't say the United States. He says the Marine Corps and other state-armed forces. With our massive firepower, we win all the battles, but they win the wars. The Van Ripers argue that most of the characteristics that Lind identifies as central to fourth generation of war, the rise of non-state actors, decentralization, and the blurring of lines between combatants and civilians have dominated wars of past ages. They are not new to a so-called fourth generation of war. I completely agree, and I have pointed the same out for decades. The framework I advocate is I advocate is the fourth is the four generations of modern war, war beginning with the Peace of Westphalia in 1648. Four generation warfare has many similarities to war before the rise of the state. So Lynn goes on. Um, I'll read you the last couple of paragraphs. I suspect the Van Riper's letter was written in response to a request from Headquarters Marine Corps and perhaps partially by Headquarters Marine Corps to discredit my critiques of the Corps' recently adopted strategy. I'm aware many Marines individually think intellectually about war, but only an institution that checked its brain at the door could come up with a strategy so comically bad as the one now promoted by Headquarters Marine Corps. (laughs) Oh, my God. That strategy is to prepare for a war with China in which Marines will take islands from the Chinese, then mount anti-ship missiles on them to shoot at Chinese warships. Some variants include anti-submarine warfare too, presumably with underwater bayonet charges. To To recapitulate what I have said elsewhere, this strategy has three notable deficiencies. First, China is a nuclear power, and nuclear powers do not fight each other in conventional wars because the risk of escalation is too great. If such a war did occur, the U.S. Navy and Air Force already have many times the number of anti-ship missiles we would need, especially since the Chinese would keep most or all of their surface warships in port. The core strategy adds nothing to the defense of our country. What the country does does need is a service specialized in fourth-generation warfare because state collapse is the main danger we face. State collapse brings, among other problems, vast numbers of refugees. One mission a fourth-generation focus would give the Marine Corps is returning refugees from the country or region they came from, which may not want to receive them. We will need the capability for places with seacoasts to take a possibly opposed amphibious landing, 
dump the refugees ashore, and leave quickly. Punitive expeditions against places that harbor terrorists, threats, threats are other logical Marine Corps missions. By becoming America's force of choice for a world of collapsing states, the Marine Corps would give itself a strategy meaningful to national security and to the American public. Finally, by adopting a strategy of Me Too, a few more anti-ship missiles in a war unlikely to happen, the Marine Corps raises the question of its own future. We still have a Marine Corps because past generations of Marines came up with roles the public and politicians could grasp were unique to the Marine Corps and clearly met a real national security need. I do not want to see the Marine Corps disappear, but if today's Marine Corps as an institution cannot do better than the face of the strategy Headquarters Marine Corps has come up with, its future is in doubt. Remember, the Corps is no longer inexpensive, and we have a debt crisis in our future. I thank the Van Rypers for their letter as it helps bring out facts a fourth-generation war that need to be addressed. I am particularly grateful for their citation as a critique of fourth-generation warfare of an article in Parameters from 1993, quote, Elegant Irrelevance, Fourth-Generation Warfare by Kenneth F. McKenzie. The same McKenzie, now a general, is the sink of Central Command, where he recently presided over our final defeat in a 20-year war against the fourth-generation entity, the Taliban, and our tail-between-our-legs withdrawal from Kabul. Ironies are seldom that delicious. So Lind, <laughs> Lind, right? Yeah, you know, drips with his, drips with his sarcasm. All right. That isn't appreciated for the most part. Yeah. Um, so let me read you a little bit of a response to Olympus. So this is from Marinus, who I'll ask who the hell that guy is, but I don't know. It might be somebody who writes for the Gazette. We appreciate Bill Lynn's contribution to the development of Marine Corps maneuver warfare doctrine, as we have acknowledged in the maneuvers papers. We are happy to have him re-engage, and we welcome his always provocative arguments, and then in parentheses, although we could do with a little less of his snark. He adds, but what does it say about the state of intellectual life in the Marine Corps that is again fighting over old ground traversed 40 years ago? He did not specifically, he did not ask us specifically, but our reply is this. We do not presume that maneuver warfare circa 1989 is the answer for the Marine Corps of today. In fact, we have introduced the maneuverous papers precisely because we believe the Marine Corps needs to have that conversation. Marine Corps doctrine is over 30 years old now, and we suspect that many Marines active today do not know its genesis. So that goes on, right? Um, let's see. Last paragraph says this. Finally, we could not agree more with Mr. Lin's point that ideas matter. That is the whole reason behind the maneuvers. We are guardedly hopeful that Mr. Lin will be willing to join the conversation in a constructive way. Um, so this is in response to a letter that, that Lin writes in August, right? 
And so I'll read you a couple paragraphs of this. So this is the this is the letter from the uh, from the Van Riper, right? In his letter, Groundhog Day, in the Marine Corps Gazette, August twenty of two thousand twenty one. William Bill Lynn failed to see the irony in his claim that today's Marines are ensnarled in a Groundhog Day. Clearly, it is not the Marine Corps, but Mr. Lind who has been living his own Groundhog Day. Since, he, since his co-authored article proclaimed, proclaiming a fourth generation of war appeared in the Marine Corps Gazette in October of 1989, he has continuously tried to sell the idea only to have it rebuffed by some of the most respected and renowned military historians and strategic and operational theorists. During the same time, the Marine Corps has moved on, cultivating knowledgeable and forward-thinking leaders of the First Order. But it is not only the intellectual arena where Lind has lived a repetitive existence. From his earliest writings, he has been habitually monotonous with an unpleasant inclination to insult and rebuke those he is trying to influence. He carried this inclination into his letter, where, among other things, where among other unsupported affronts, he asserts, quote, the Marine Corps is more than a few bricks shy of a load, close quote. After reading Lynn's letter, younger Marines might be apt to ask the question, quote, where did Bill Lynn come from? And um, so the Van Rippers go on, and they take, and they kind of take Bill Lynn apart. All right, now, and they close, they close with this. Based on what we have learned in over 105 years of combined service in uniform and subsequently as PME instructors, we encourage Marines currently serving to look beyond the views and opinions of Lind. His thoughts have no worth, have no worth remotely comparable to what today's Marines gardener from service under fire or through professional education and training. Mirroring Lind's annoying comment at the close of his lecture, we find ourselves compelled to respond in kind, noting that in continuing to insist on the merits of a fourth generation of war, Lynn reveals that he has only that he has only one broken brick in his load. How funny. So there you have it. So we're going to ask, uh, we'll ask Woody about that tomorrow. So Bill Lind, um, you know, I first heard of him in 1989. Maybe I read about him in the Gazette in the 80s. And uh, and his style is very much um, to insult as he attempts to persuade. And that has never played well in Peoria. Um but he was a he was a central part of the he was a central part of the discussion about maneuver warfare and my own personal experience is is, is that i thought his knowledge of things german and things operational um and i when i say operational i don't refer to the operational level of war but how things actually worked i thought it was not as I thought it was not as substantive as it should be because when you get down to trying to understand how a how in a conflict with a main effort designated what is the role of subordinates 
that are supposed to constantly use their initiative. Well, if my if my regiment is the main effort, right? Do I have the authority, right, to go ahead and fritter away the combat power by using my initiative? And so nuanced questions like that you never heard discussed. And then so when I went looking for the German troop leading manual, what I found, um, what I found in there that said that if you as a leader, through your own initiative, fritter away the combat power of your senior commander, you know, you essentially do so at the <laughs> at your professional peril. Well, that doesn't sound like a skip and go naked organization. And so, to me, it gave rise to this idea that I called coordinated initiative, and that that is where the organization, um, if it's important enough for you to deviate from, it's important enough for you to make sure your higher headquarters know because they may be coordinating something that you don't understand. And so in a mature military where that's uh, steeped in experience, well, I wouldn't even say steep, that's executing, right? You have to know that, you know, there's bigger things that are going on out there. And so as a leader, the first thing you have to do when you see something that, that isn't right and, and you're going to peel away some of the combat power of your senior organization, the first thing you have to do is you have to get on the radio and you have to say, hey, this is what I see, right? You know, Ernest Evans, you know, which uh, I think the Battle of Samar was yesterday. I think it's October 25th. But, um, but if they turn around and say, stand by, right, there's about, 110, right, Corsairs that are about to engage them, right? Stay with your, you know, stay with the escort carriers. Well, that changes things, right? That changes things. So anyway, the concept of coordinated initiative in a dynamic event, if it's if you're contemplating, you know, frittering, frittering away the combat power of the main effort, which in maneuver warfare was designated, then the second thing you should do is, you know, is call and, and tell somebody what you're doing. Okay, Mac, what happens if you can't get through? Well, at that point, you have a decision to make. But you relentlessly continue to make contact as you, as you evolve this thing. And hopefully at some point you do. And, and, and maybe they will tell you, we didn't know that was there, you know, continue. Or maybe they'll say, we've accounted for that. You know, come back and resume your previous mission. That's all a, a more nuanced, I think, mature understanding of the way this happened. But that's not, that's not, it was like when we did, you know, we had to, we were charged with doing, and I, I wouldn't go out on them, complete free play. The lieutenants had to do their own thing. And they would stumble around and not make contact. It was just stupid. It was absolutely stupid. But that's what, you know, he espoused. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's it. We're not, we're not talking about a sand table exercise. We're talking about having hundreds of Marines out, right, um, operating. We're talking about having hundreds of Marines uh, acting as aggressors and all the support people to go with it. And then we're going to say, okay, it's complete free play. And that's what he, you know, so again, it's just, 
he's a lot more um, on the snarky side. And But he was central in the debate about maneuver warfare uh, circa 1980. No, I'm sorry, circa 1990. So anyway, I wanted to share that little kerfuffle with you. And uh, we'll talk about it with Woody. Uh, the Mensa brothers will talk about it. So yeah, Bill End. Some things just don't go away. That's it for the news hour on a Tuesday. Um, You know, probably the most significant story that I... um, that is in the news today is a story about Iran. So now what? Right? The Iranians, you know, attacked an American outpost in a, in a, in a, with a complex attack. So what does the United States of America do about that? I guess we'll see at some point, right? I guess we'll see at some point. So, pretty stunning. Pretty stunning. So, the Biden administration being pushed. What's Joe Biden going to do? So, we will see. We will see. On that note, I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio. Have a great Tuesday. Chris Woodbridge joins me tomorrow, the editor and publisher of the Gazette. The Mensa Brothers on Thursday. I want to see if I can track down General Zinni for next week. Yeah, I'd like to get his thoughts on Colin Powell. I'd like to get his thoughts on Afghanistan. And a little bit about China, if we have the time. And then I'm going to reach out to General Van Riper and ask him to talk, if he wants to talk about this. So anyway, on that note, Have a great Tuesday. Don't be afraid to stick your hand out and help somebody. If I can help, just go to the website. All the contact information will get you to me. And have a great day. And I'm out.